All right, God's word. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 21 is where we're going to read from God's word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's where we pick up on what we're going to focus on this morning. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This reads the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. It's said there that what we want to be is a people, when we gather, who address one another with songs and hymns, giving thanks always and submitting to one another. Around our church community this week, um, we will begin gathering in what we call community groups. You've been in, maybe you've been in other churches that do this, that, that, have, uh, that we don't just simply gather once a week for this larger corporate time, but we, it's so, simply smaller subsets of the church gathering in homes to continue the fellowship that we begin here. And we want it to be that. We want it to be a continuation of what happens here, to discuss God's word, to pray for one another more deeply and more intimately, to laugh and to cry together as God's people, to break bread together. These things called small groups or community groups. But what will our community at King's Chapel look like? And what will your community group look like? Now, we could look like a community like the world, right? Which is where we gather together and we have great time with each other, but that great time is really rather vapid, where there is no depth, where we are so cool, quote-unquote, that we are afraid to speak spiritually to one another, where we are so emotionally insecure that we're not willing to share about our, the deepest parts of our spiritual life, much less be willing to sing songs to one another, to sing over one another as we, as we grieve in a season. What it might be to call someone to sing, right? To, to sing about the sovereignty of God, maybe in a season of suffering together. We could, we could be a community where authenticity and vulnerability amount to nothing more than a, a spirit of complaining about our struggles and our brokenness without the hope of the gospel and without a spiritual look, that, for the spiritual eyes that will look for the hope of life and thanksgiving and joy. Or we could be a community that never subservience ourselves to one another. Where we, we do life in community only out of kind of our reserves. That we reserve our relational and emotional energies uh, to the side. And we give people, we just give each other the scraps of our relational life. Where we don't actually bear burdens, where we just kind of wave at the burden. They rest on other people's backs as they weep, as they go past us. They go, oh, I'm sorry about your burden. Or we could be a beautiful community. The type of community where we speak and encourage one another with songs. Where we read the psalms to people who are suffering. Or we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Where we have the childlike faith where we would quietly whisper, draw one, someone in a corner as we gather to eat and just say, hey, I just want to share with you this good word from God's word this week. As I heard your story, I reflected on this. Where we would write a small note simply giving someone the word of God, a psalm that might speak comfort or life or joy into their life. 
where we would, we would be so spiritual that we want to speak the words of the Spirit of God, which is the Word of God, where we share one with one another, and we, have, and we give answers, and we begin to have spiritual eyes to see that we pray so much, and we begin to ask God for such big things that when we come into our community groups, we begin to actually list off more answers to prayer than asking of more prayer requests. That we begin to see, we have the eyes to see how God is answering our prayers in our community. And where we become a people who are known by their spirit of service. Where they're known by their spirit of service. The people who hear the needs of a young mom in their community group and go, I will be a means. I will be a means this week of lifting her up. Where they they hear a a man who is discouraged at his work and and broken down by the difficulties of leading his family. And he feels he's incapable, incapable of doing so. And he needs a brother who will come alongside and say, you are doing so well. I'm so proud of you. You're God's man. He puts you in this role. What would it be like to bear such burdens? That is a beautiful community. I, we want to be that kind of community. It takes time. But if we had that, it would be beautiful, wouldn't it? It would be something attractive that the people of the world might press their nose against the window and go, I want that. I don't know about this Jesus guy, and I don't know about all that, what they believe, but I, I want that. And that we would be countercultural in the best of ways. How does such a community happen? It happens when the members of, of this community are filled by the Spirit of the living God. That their life is an overflow of the Spirit of God in them. Now, if you are fairly new to Christianity and you're like, what is a spirit? And how is he connected to God? Real brief, and we could talk about this more, a brief overview of the Trinity. <laughs> we serve and worship a triune God, a Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is one, but he exists eternally as three persons. That is not illogical, but it is incomprehensible to our finite minds. Each of the persons share the same essence and the same character and the same substance. They are equal in power and glory. And this morning we are talking about the third person of the Trinity as we talk about him and refer to him, who is the Spirit. And while the second person of the Trinity, who we most often talk about, I think, is Jesus, the Son of God who takes the name Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and came and completed his redeeming work here on earth, But then when he leaves to go into heaven to rule and reign, he then sends his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he sends his spirit into the hearts of every believer. The very same spirit who dwelled and filled and empowered Jesus. He sends that same spirit to bring life, to renew us. The the, the theological word is to regenerate us, to to bring us to new life again. And wonder of wonders, the same spirit that indwelt and empowered Jesus now dwells in every single believer in Jesus Christ. The very power of God has made his home, his residence, his permanent address your heart. In your life. We are looking at just verse 18 this morning. And we'll look just at that phrase. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Some of you had filled donuts this morning. I have something better for you. 
But who is the Spirit? What is this guy? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And if I actually decide I want it, how in the world do I fill, get filled with the Spirit? So those are the two questions this morning. That's how we're going to order our time. Question one, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Now, briefly, it's a word picture. It's a word picture to be filled with the Spirit. Part of the mystery is that even in the English, the word full can be used in many different ways, can't it? right? For example, John is full of whiskey. That little boy is full of mischief. Two different ways that you can use the word. He opened the engine full throttle. The crowd was filled with fear. We use that word in many different ways, in many different contexts, filled. So what is meant by this word as Paul uses it here in regards to being filled by the Spirit? Paul helps in a way, but in a way that surprises us, especially us who live in a country where we had something called prohibition. And it is he uses the idea of drunkenness as a metaphor to help us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, he uses this metaphor as a compare and contrast A compare and contrast metaphor means there's going to be some similarities and there's going to be some dissimilarities. We'll focus first on the similarities. The similarities, right? Actually, when the Spirit comes upon the life of the Christian, it's interesting. This is not the only place in which those who have the Spirit of God in which there is a connection to drunkenness. In Acts chapter 2, where what we see is that for the first time the Spirit comes to indwell the hearts of believers, when the Spirit falls and baptizes the first apostles, and they go out to preach, what was the reaction of the crowd? They said, are they drunk? Are they drunk? And they said, no, we are not drunk. We have something better. So what are the similarities that might be there between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Well, first I would say this. Being filled with the Spirit means that you are under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Under the controlling influence. That phrase, controlling influence, is what you want to remember. When we say someone is full of whiskey, we are saying he is under the influence, right? We literally call the illegal activity is a DUI, driving, or DWI, driving while under the influence. It is not a statement about how much alcohol someone has had, but how much the alcohol has him. Not how much alcohol he's had, but how much the alcohol has him. It is a controlling influence where you begin to act and behave in a way that you may not have before. And here refers to a controlling influence between two persons, and yet one person is the Holy Spirit. And he enters your life, and when he fills you, he becomes the controlling influence in every area of your life. Now, every believer, other ways we talk about it is you're baptized. You're baptized with the Spirit. That happens one time. It's once and for all. It is a non-repeatable action. That's why we only baptize people once. The Spirit has moved in, and he ain't moving out. God come in and take the ruling seat of the government authority of your life. He kicks the evil one out and he takes over. But it's another entirely thing, right? Like when the U.S. Army invaded Iraq, we went straight for Baghdad, didn't we? And we took Baghdad, but then we realized, what do we have to do? We got to take every other part, don't we? And while we had the ruling seat in place of authority now, now that authority had to take part in every area of the country, and so it is in our hearts and our life. The Spirit has come, and He has taken over rule and reign in your life, but now that rule and reign has to fill up your life and take control. 
and be the controlling influence. Paul is calling us to not simply have the Holy Spirit, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, such that the Holy Spirit exerts his control into the furthest reaches of your heart, your soul, and your very life. So in verse 18, it says, be filled. It's one word in the Greek. One verb. And the grammar here is very important. I'm going to draw four things out of this. This is called exegesis. If you want a big 50-cent word that you can go right on the board and feel really, really important and theological, give you four things about this word, be filled, that helps us understand the controlling influence of the Spirit. First, it's in the imperative voice. That means it's a command. Be filled. I mean, this is not a polite recommendation. This is not something for us to consider. This is a command for our life. Second, it actually is in the plural. It's be filled, y'all. That's what Paul is saying, which means he's not saying to a few cool people in the church, a few select high-powered individuals who are extremely moral and have great leadership skills. No, he says the filling of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's for everyone. Third, it's in the passive voice. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Now, that's very interesting because he actually says you're commanded, you're commanded and imperative to be filled, and yet you are passive in the being filled. How does that work? Well, I take that to mean that while the Spirit fills us, we are passive, but we are not utterly passive. Let's use the idea of drinking again. You get drunk by drinking, but the act of drinking itself does not make you drunk, does it? I can drink all the juicy juice in the world and it will not make me drunk. But you put that particular item, alcohol, into your system, you have done that, it's, you have not made yourself drunk, have you? But once you put that in your system, the alcohol does what it does. And so what it's saying here is, what, he's, what he, Paul is giving us here in this description is, let yourself Surrender yourself to the influence, the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Stop resisting his influence in your life. Become passive. In other words, the call here is the active act of surrendering what you want. Lastly, the verb tense is present perfect, which means this is something that, is, that must happen now, and it must happen in an ongoing manner. The most literal interpretation of this is keep on being filled, which This is not a once and for all thing, but it's a continual filling that you'll need, which means you can lose this. You can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, but also the good news is you can be refilled if you've once lost it. In other words, this helps explain why we have seasons of such dryness as Christians, and that needs to be acknowledged, doesn't it? Especially for some of you who are new Christians, you may be on a spiritual high right now, but there are times and there are seasons for many, many different reasons that you may enter in a season of spiritual dryness. And that needs to be acknowledged so that it doesn't come as a surprise to you. But the good news, and the reason why many of us feel dry, though, and frustrated, and why you may feel incredible fatigue in your life, is because you are no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. He lives in your life, but he does not fill your life. And so many of us are experiencing God's presence, not, not experiencing God's presence, Because our life is not being given to him daily in a surrender to his controlling influence. So you want want to know how you know? Well, you see it in the evidence of your life from the fruit of your life. So you need to begin asking yourself that question. Are you filled with the Spirit? Can you say that your life reflects the the, the life of someone whose life is fully in control of the Holy Spirit? Are you bearing fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness? 
Are you someone who shares the word and sings the words over someone? Are you somebody who's filled with thanksgiving or filled with cynicism and bitterness? These are tough and difficult questions that will convict us. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? But not just that. We see that what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is that you come under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit such that, next point, it involves a deeper experience of the Lord. A deeper experience of the Lord. Listen, just as being drunk comes along with a feeling, right? It is a felt experience to be drunk. Not a positive feeling, I might add. So also being filled with the Spirit is felt. It is an experience in your life. This is hard to describe because most of the time feelings are hard to describe. But I'm talking about here a sense of God's presence. A palpable grasping of God's love for you such that it takes hold of your desires and your affections. Are you experiencing God in this way? Where God is the greatest delight of your heart and your life. Where you are filled up and enamored by the beauty of God. Paul longs for us to have this. He prays for this consistently in his prayers. Yes, cerebral, intellectual, theological Paul prays for this in your life. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. And one of the first prayers he has in this book, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, it says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, so he's talking about a Christian, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul is praying for believers here, but he's praying for believers who have already been baptized and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yet, he's praying for these Christians that they would have their eyes opened. Why is Paul asking for something they supposedly already have? Because it is one thing to have the truth of something, and it's another thing for that truth to sparkle and shine within your soul. It is one thing to know the truth generally, but it's another thing to know it particularly. So if I might say this in in a way to catch you as to what this might mean. For example, it's one thing to say matter-of-factly and doctrinally, yes, God loves me. It's another thing when you're brought to a place where you go, God loves me, all caps. Those are two different experiences. Where you begin to be taken control of by this experience of God, you're amazed by what he has done for you again. Are you full in that sense? Do you wake up every day and you're having an experience in your spiritual life where you're at all of God's love for you, that you're at all that he's made you a child of God, that you have an inheritance in heaven? Do you, are you full in that sense? Well, what should be our answer? Sometimes should be our answer. Sometimes. That seems to be the answer of the experience of Christians in the New Testament. 
That while we are called and commanded to be filled, that part of the reality of this is that we are going to need perpetual filling and because sometimes we will not be filled and we will not experience this. And on one hand, people who attempt to conjure up feelings thinking that to be spirit-filled means you're always happy and you're always on a spiritual high is actually hypocrisy. If you say, I lost my job and my girlfriend dumped me and I wrecked my car, but I'm doing great, that is hypocrisy. That is not spirit-filled. David had many times where he, he did not feel joy, where he's constantly saying to God, my soul is dry and parched, so fill me up again. Paul, we think of him as never having issues, that Paul is always on the spiritual mountaintop with his Superman cape flapping in the wind, ready to go save whatever church God calls him to, and yet, you know what Paul is always asking the churches to pray for him? He's saying, pray that I would have boldness. Now, why would he ask for that? Because Paul, the one we always think is always brazenly bold, he sometimes wasn't bold. And that is good news for wimps like me. Because we need a fresh filling. He needed a fresh filling so that he might have boldness again because he had fallen in love again and been amazed and enamored by the love of God for him again that he began to overflow with gospel proclamation. On the other hand, And this, I think, is far more the spirit of the age that we must fight against. There are those who have become spiritually complacent. And you have lost the hunger. That you are not crying out like David. I live in a dry and parched land. And I long for you, God. That I'm a deer, like, longing for water. Instead, our aims are too low. Often in our attempt to be churches and people who are authentic and want to be willing to talk about our brokenness and how difficult life is, is actually we've begun to sound like spiritual Eeyores and we need to expect more. We begin to be okay with the laissez-faire attitude that, yes, I'm in a dry season for my 30s and 40s and 50s and that's just where I'm going to be. We need to expect more in our relationship with God because he promises it. John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Stop for a minute. Is that the, that's the, isn't that the life you want? That out of my heart flows living waters. And then he said this in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, living waters. In other words, we might call that the abundant life, Jesus called it in John 10.10. That even, yes, when you face brokenness and the sorrows of this broken world, that even in that, that you would abound in joy because there's a river of living water in your heart. When the Bible says to be filled, it is saying that this is not an option simply for the super spiritual or for one or two moments while you're in college on a, on a campus outreach retreat. This is supposed to be something, a well from which we are to drink in deeply our whole life. This is a real option for you. Have you forgotten that? And so my call to you today would be this. And the call here is while you can't make the Spirit fill you up, You can raise the sails and catch the wind. 
in a fresh wind that you would need to say, man, I, I long for a deeper assurance and a deeper joy and a fresh wind to be bold and not ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. That's what I long for. And so you raise the sails and you say, Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on me. In Christ, you are more than conquerors. Christ always leads up to a triumphant procession. Thanks be to God that he gives us a victory and that he fills us up and that that feeling is real and it's offered to you today. Amen? And the experience of the Spirit's control in your life is so much better, so much better. And King Chapel, you need to hear us because some of you have become fools. It's so much better than alcohol. Briefly, just the dissimilarities in the metaphor. The Spirit is a much better controlling influence than alcohol. What does it say in the text that alcohol leads to? Debauchery. <laughs> now, that is a word we don't usually say every week. I mean, how many of you use the word debauchery this week? Not me, other than reading it in the text. Debauchery means reckless living. It means literally a loss of control. It means a depleted by reckless use of something. Wasted. Well used is that term, right? Wasted. It is actually the same word that's used of the prodigal son when it says that he went off and he wasted his life in reckless living. And he found himself at the pit. He, and it says he wakes up in the pigsty. So drunkenness, what does it do? It depletes you. It exhausts you. <laughs> so let me say this to some of you young parents. In your 20s and 30s, when you're not getting a whole lot of sleep and you can't leave the house, don't give yourself to nightly drinking. It will not serve you. It will not be the answer. You're going, man, maybe 30 when we're in finally 40 or 50, but this is a pattern that I see too often. I've seen it in my own life. I tried it in a sense of like, man, can we get some sort of joy at the end of this exhausting day? We just want to fall on the couch and have something, but let's, let's, there's something better for you. And if you stay up late doing this, guess what you don't do? You don't get up in the morning and drink deeply from the well of God's word. So whereas in the fullness of the spirit leads you to what? Alcohol depletes you, your resources. And so you have bags under your eyes every day when you could have gone to bed and you could have gone up and you could have dwelt and drank deeply from God's word such that you sing and you give thanks and you have fellowship. That's what he offers here, the abundant life. And the experience of the Spirit energizes instead of depresses. Did you know that? This famous Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was actually a doctor before he became a, a, a preacher. And he actually makes this point about this text where he says this, wine and alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, now that's a big word, pharmacologically speaking as a drug is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. Take up any book of pharmacology and you'll find that it classifies under the depressants. You drink... And we drink in order to get over things. For example, some people drink in order to be social. But drink helps because it does what? It doesn't heighten reality. It depresses reality. It depresses their social inhibitions. That's why we call it liquid courage. Alcohol gives us those things, but it does so by depressing us. And so it depresses your judgment, and you do stupid things. It depresses your understanding. It depresses your vision for life and what it can be. But the problem is still there. 
It's still there. The alcohol can't take, take care of it. And the alcohol does nothing but simply limit your view like a horse with blinders on so you can ignore the flames around you for a few minutes. And that's lovely and well and good, but ultimately the need is still there. But the Spirit of God works in the opposite way. The Spirit of God is a stimulant. The Holy Spirit works not by diminishing your vision, not by closing you to the world of reality around you, but he shows you more of reality. He expands your vision, and therefore the Spirit helps you overcome your insecurities, not by giving you liquid courage, but by helping you not to escape reality, but by showing you reality as it really is, and giving you boldness and courage to go into a place and share God's good news, because you begin to realize what they think of me doesn't matter, because the Spirit of God has convinced me that I'm a child of God's. And what God says about me matters more than what these people say about me. And I long for my friends to know that they're children of God too. And so I'm going to share God's word to them. That's courage given to you. It's a stimulant by the Holy Spirit. One of the best stories to to look to in the whole Bible on this, we read just a couple months ago. In the story of Elisha and his servant. When you saw that, that they were surrounded by the army of Assyria. And Elisha and the, the servant is freaking out. And Elijah doesn't say to his servant, they're there. I have some wine in the back. Why don't you go get liquored up and I'll take care of this? What does he say? What's he do? He prays, Lord, would you open his eyes and what does he see? He sees the actual reality, which is that God's mighty army of angels surrounds the Syrian army and that God is moving and working. That's reality. And so to apply this, maybe an example would be you lose your job. And we think of the person, the man who finds out, he gets the pink slip, and he, what does he do? He goes to the bar, and he doesn't want to think about it. And so he's depressed. The next day, he gets up and starts to drink again. The Spirit, though, casts that in a new perspective. Yes, the joblessness is still there, and it looms over your life, but the Spirit looms over your future. The Spirit comes with God's Word and presses it in fresh and anew and gives you life and says, yield control to God's sovereign will for your life. Understand that I will never leave you or forsake you, that I have you, that I will provide for you. These are the truths of God's Word and the truths of God's spirits. And He comes in as a stimulant to get you up off the mat and to encourage you to say, yes, I will move forward in trust of the Word of God and what the Spirit has to say over me. See, so many of us are not experiencing God's presence and power in this way because we are not under the Spirit's controlling influence. And yet you were meant to. You were meant to drink deeply from the well and to experience this abundant life. Do you want it? Do you want it? Well, maybe you're saying, yes, I want that. And maybe you're experiencing some conviction right now because you realize you've actually looked to a lot of other things and not actually the Spirit of God to be the controlling influence of your life. And you say, what I want is a fresh experience. I want that fresh wind, and I want that fresh power. So how do you get it? This is the second question. How do we become filled with the Spirit? We must remember this, that the Spirit is a person. And that's important. You see, that matters. How do you get filled with the Spirit? If you're filled with the Spirit and you think the Spirit is simply an impersonal force, what do you got to do? You got to just poke and press a few mechanical spiritual buttons and that is what, is what will work. That's not how it works, right? You're dealing with not an impersonal force that you can deal with mechanically, but you're dealing with a person. So you deal with them in relational terms. I'm going to give you one don't and one do. There's lots of ways in which I would say you can open yourself to the Spirit's filling. One don't is this. Don't quench the Spirit. If I'm in a with someone and they come to my wife comes to me and she says I need time with you and I say nope 
And she says, hey, I need you to listen to this about your life and how I need you to interact with me. And I go, oh, I don't care. What's this going to do with my relationship with her? Is my life going to be filled up with intimacy and connection with my wife? No. No, sorry. And the Bible actually says that we can quench the Holy Spirit when we tell God no. When we insist on doing something that God has said no to, or the opposite, when we cease to do something which God has said, yes, go and do that. And there, are there any areas in your life where you find that you're telling God no? Are there areas in your life where you're, not, you're quenching by simply drifting? You're neglecting prayer. You're neglecting his word. You're, perhaps you're refusing to forgive somebody. And you're nursing a grievance or a pain that you simply won't let go. Got this illustration from Rankin Wilburn. He, he refers to a book uh, by Robert McGillican, who is a man, who, a professor who wrote on the topic of the filling of the Holy Spirit. He tells the story of a, a woman coming to him saying, I am so sick and tired of living the Christian life. I'm not getting in anywhere, and I don't know what's wrong. That sounds familiar. And McGillican asked her, well, who's in the driver's seat of your life? And she said, well, well Jesus is. And then she paused. Well, most of the time. And he said, well, that's not the way this relationship is, needs to work. You can't say, Jesus, you're in, you're in control, or to take the country song, Jesus, take the wheel. But then when you come to an intersection in your life where you sense Jesus is turning you in one direction, and you don't want to go in that direction, and so you decide to grab the wheel back from him and turn the opposite direction, guess what happens? You said no. And so McGillican took out a sheet of paper, and he wrote two words on it. On one side, he wrote no, N-O, and the other side, he wrote Lord. And he said this, which will you choose? She thought for a long time and reached out and finally grabbed the Lord sheet. And he said, good. But remember this, though. You will always try and jerk the wheel back until you're convinced that what God wants for you is your deepest joy. I came, Jesus said, so that you may have joy and joy in abundance. <laughs> and yet so many of you are cool for Jesus to have the, the, the wheel on the straightaways. But when you come to points of decision, you want it. This life in the Spirit is most often lost, not actually, interesting enough, through a defiant no, though. But hear this, for you Christians. For many of you are, are faithful in many ways, but this is complacency. It is no, not most often lost through a defiant no, but it's actually simply lost through day in and day out, not nows. It is a small, not nows, to God, day in and day out. The real enemy to life in the Spirit is usually not bold-faced defiance, where God says, go to Nineveh, like he told Jonah, and you go, uh-uh, and you go the exact opposite direction. It actually looks far more like this. It's getting up and going, I'm going to hit the alarm clock instead of time, spending time with the Lord, uh, in which God says, you're supposed to pursue your wife on that area of conflict you guys had yesterday. And you say, not now, I'll do it later when it's easier. You're supposed to go and have family devotions with your kids. You go, not now, because that's going to be hell on earth. And you go, no, not now, not now, please not now. I'll do it later. And we give ourselves over to little, little, little sins, little sins, Little sins of spiritual laziness were flopping back into the comfortable lack of concern for the things of God. John Owen put it this way. He said, every sin, though, weakens and darkens the soul. 
He goes on to say that when we fail to put little sins to death, that our lusts and our sins will actually drink up, that's quench the Holy Spirit. It will sap the vigor of our souls and it will rot our desires and will dampen our sense of the love of the Father for us. Did you hear that? Sin has an eroding and corroding effect on your soul. It steals your joy. No wonder Owen is famous for saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He's just repeating Paul. You see, Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He didn't say, if you live according to the flesh, you'll have a bad day. He says, apart from me, later on he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But think of that for just a second. We, can, we try to do life apart from him all the time. And what that involves is this, is a slow drifting away and a lesser and lesser experience of the things of God. But the good news is still there in Romans 8. Verse 13, he continues on. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the, deed, the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. For you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you will live. So here's the cry. The cry. Don't quench the spirits with your sinfulness. And so you need to ask yourself some questions. Some of you are in a place of spiritual exhaustion because you have not done some diagnostic work and you need to ask the question, where is it that I am grieving the Holy Spirit where I'm saying not now over and over and over again? And perhaps there might be the answer as to why you have such little experience and such, it's supposed to be a spring and you have a little trickle of the spiritual life. But we are supposed to do something, and there's many things one can do. But let me just, I want to put it this way, because I think it's the area that's most illustrated in the Bible. Do cry out for the Spirit with prayers of repentance. Do cry out to the Spirit with prayers of repentance. I put this in late. I forgot to put it in, so maybe why it's not up there. Do cry out for the Spirit with prayers of repentance. And that repentance part needs to be there. It needs to be there. Prayers of repentance comes the need to speak a word of assurance. We come to him and say, God, I need to hear from you. And, 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 and we need to hear from him in, in a mighty way. And you say, God, I have sinned against you. Would you come and restore me? You remember that one of the great illustrations of this is David. You remember David and his, his very famous sin with Bathsheba. He has sinned and he sinned big. But it's interesting, that big sin was preceded by what? Spiritual apathy. And then I see a season of apathy, and then what happens? He doesn't go to war. He doesn't make war. And then he sinned big time. And in this prayer of repentance that is captured in Psalm chapter 51, what is David's most pleading cry in that passage? Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why was he afraid? Because he had sinned. And when we ascend, it erodes our assurance of God's love for us. And so he's crying out to God, the Spirit of God is holy, and the Spirit of God cannot dwell with sin. I know that. And so David knew that, and he knew he should be abandoned. He deserved to be abandoned by God. He had deserved for the Spirit of God to leave him as the Spirit of God left Saul, his predecessor. But God, did God take the Holy Spirit from David? No. The Holy Spirit stayed with him even though he was a sinner, even though he deserved abandonment. There's sinful David who says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And God says, okay, I won't. I'll give him to you in abundance. And that is true for you as well. 
For you may be convicted by the first part or the most of this first 75% of this sermon, you may be convicted of a season of apathy, of sitting on your heels and simply coasting in your spiritual life, and perhaps that has led to some consequences and frankly some sinfulness and patterns in your life. But there is good news for you. Once baptized in the Spirit, He will never cast you away, which means there is opportunity for filling once again. And that is true for you as it was for David, because centuries after David's confession, his descendant Jesus, we sang about this in the first song this morning, that Jesus is the descendant of David. The sinless king comes and says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? God, don't take your presence from me. Don't take your presence from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your presence and your face from me. But God did. The perfect Holy One, God who deserved God's presence and who lived in, in eternally in perfect union with the Father, has the Father's face, has the Father's presence, has the Spirit taken from him. So sinful David and you and I deserve to lose the Spirit, but the one who deserved to have the Spirit had him taken so that you and I, who deserve to lose the Spirit, can always have him. He's always there. He's always available for you. And so you come with words and cries of repentance and say, God, I have abandoned you. I have lost my first love. Would you fill me up again? And so, yes, what that means, that you have not lived under the Spirit's controlling influence. And you come and you say, I'm experiencing joy and delight in other things. But would you fill me up with you once again? And out of that sick and tired state, that I am sick of this kind of spiritual life, I am sick of being weary and tired and my my tongue sticking to the back of my mouth all the time. That heart cry begins to say what? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. That you are the one I need. I need less of me and I need more of you. So that what this, the call here is we follow Paul's example, which what he is always praying for the Ephesian church is this, fill them up, fill them up with the Spirit's power. Keep praying. And so what that means is this, you come to God tomorrow morning or this afternoon in your conviction and you say, God, I have been like David. I have abandoned you. I have lived apathetically. Here's my sins. I repent and I want and I plead with you that I want you more than this. And as you pray, guess what happens? Maybe not over immediately, but the spirit will fall. You know what the apostles were doing when the spirit fell in Acts 2? They were praying in the upper room. And here's what Paul says. We're going to end with this. Here's what Paul says in his great prayer in the middle part of the book. He said, for this reason I bow my knees, that's a prayer stance, right? Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, so that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to what? Be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that, so we're going to get the strength of the spirit in us, so that we, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, we come back to strengthened, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's it, being filled. So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He prays that you would have strength to comprehend. To comprehend what? It's so, so good. To comprehend what? The love of God for you. In other words, that's, That's where you find the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
where the Holy Spirit comes down and strengthens you in such a way that you begin to fl- you, you're swimming in deeper waters of the love of God for you again. And you would begin to comprehend it and you would know it and you would taste it. And you're asking the Spirit to make Christ's love real to you again, deeper than it did when you were in college and deeper than it did when you first had children, but deep, deep, deep way that you've never had him before. A fresh take. And then having tasted again of God's love for you, what happens? Verse 19, you're filled again. And then you're filled again. And then you're filled again. And what begins to happen is you begin to be John 7, 38. You begin to be a river, a river of water begins to flow out of your life. And so might I leave you with this image. Don't settle for margaritas on the beach. But dive into the ocean of God's love. It's the place where you will find the Spirit will fill you and the Word of God will begin to flow out of you into the life of yours and those around you. May that be so in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be convicted. (laughs) It's not a fun thing. And Lord, I think it's been a long time since I've been convicted this much in one of my own sermons and writing it. That, Lord, I have given way to the lies of the evil one that would say that busy is better. To the excuses that say, I got four kids, and they don't sleep, and I got a dog. And says, ah, what I I really need is more sleep in my life. And what I need is more downtime and me time. And what I need is more vegetation. Lord, I pray that you would root out those things that have made me slothful and lazy spiritually those things that have made me kind of walk around with a spiritual malaise and a stupor, where I've given too much time and money to those things that depress me, that don't give me life. So Lord, would you, your spirit fall fresh here? Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh and break us and melt us and mold us and fill us so that this church would be a place where we come in and we sing over one another? That we would be a church that comes into our community groups and we are abounding with thanksgiving and gratitude in seasons of sorrow and of, of, of great blessing. That we would be a church that is bound with the Holy Spirit such that we love to give our lives in submission to one another, to our community group, to our spouses, to our children, to our places of work. Would you do that? Would your spirit fall? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.